Well, this morning, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 7. And before we do that, let's seek the Lord's merciful blessing and that He would open His Word to us. Father, we're so thankful that right here, right now, You are with us by the Spirit. We're so thankful that You speak to us, that Your Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We praise You that You speak to us. You minister grace to us. You give promises to us and hope to us. And Father, I just ask that we would be able to see You and know You and understand You this morning. We would know Your love. Oh Lord, what a great privilege that I have to exalt You and to lift You up and to seek in some way to present you to your people. And I just ask for mercy and grace. I ask for wisdom and discernment. And I ask that you would work through me by the Spirit and illumine us all this morning to who you are and what this means for our life. For we ask it in Christ. Amen. This morning we're going to be talking about the supreme love of God. One of the most amazing and glorious topics that you could ever be able to speak on. It's a, I was just struck last night as I thought about this, um, thinking about how much of an amazing privilege it is to be able to declare the excellencies of God, to be able to exalt Him, lift Him up, and, and, and do all that I can and all of my power to praise Him and present Him to us. So, Hopefully this morning, as we are able to see the love of God, God helps us to see and to understand um, just truly who He is in His love and what this means for our lives. Because depending on how well we understand and live in the love of God, it really does determine the quality of our life. Do you realize that right now, the quality of your living, the quality of your life is contingent completely contingent upon your understanding and knowing the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we are, we, we, we're people who waver. We're people who like, we're doing well today and not so well tomorrow. You can hear this today and be encouraged and strengthened, and you can really have a clear vision of who God is, and then tomorrow it's all different. And so keeping before our eyes is so important, this understanding of who God is, and what he's like, especially in his love. This is important to understand. Because I think we, if we struggle to experience, experientially know and dwell in the love of God, we will struggle to know and experience love in our own lives. We will struggle to know and experience love for other people. If, if, God, if I think my God is stingy, I'll be stingy. If I know him to be loving, and I know it not just in my head, but I know it experientially, and his love fills my heart, I'm loving towards others. That's how it works. We can we have to know love before we can ever live in love. 
And let's, um, let me just tell you this. Knowing love experientially is the greatest gift you could ever have, is to know his love. And when the Bible says know his love, it doesn't mean have a few facts in your head. It means you know it experientially in your soul. That's the kind of knowing it's talking about. You know, nothing is better than to be filled with and overflow with love. If you've ever experienced love before, hopefully you've experienced love some capacity. Could you imagine being so filled with love that you overflow with love? Well, there's nothing greater in this world. I'm thinking, man, that, that would be right there, the epitome of living. Living would be to know love in this way, to know it so deeply and have so much love that it overflows in love. Well, that's what happens when we know the love of God and come to know it. You realize that um, if I was to offer you all the money and the power in the world, on the one hand, all of it, or the love of God in its fullness in your life, what would you take? All the money, all the power in the world, or the fullness of the love of God, to know it deeply. It's really, it's a no-brainer. If you, know, if you know the love of God, it's a no-brainer. If you don't know and you wonder about it, or you question it, and you're, you're thinking, eh, I'm not sure, then you, ha- you haven't really even known or tasted the sweetness of the love of God. <laughs> Wasn't the option. <laughs> so this morning, I want us to dive in here and see something about the love of God. And hopefully we can, we can come to this place where we know it experientially, as opposed to just knowing it in our heads. Because we want, first of all, I want to look at the fact that God loves, God loves because he is love. In 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse 7, it says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. And why, he says? Because God is love. Now, we have all know this passage. We've all heard this before. This isn't new. To hear that God is love. But we don't always know what this means. What exactly does this mean in the details? We can often struggle with that because we see in Scripture a God who may not always fit our definition of love. If you've read your Bible, you will see that God brings judgment on people. He judges people for their sin. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He wanted to destroy his own people on the Mount Sinai. If you say, well, I've read my Bible and so God is love, and if God does that... There's, a, there's this weird tension. How can you say God is love when God acts like this? And then something else we realize is, man, if that's how God treats sinners and what he does to people who sin, and I know myself all too well, and I know I'm, I know I sin, I know, I know I'm a sinner, it makes me leery or can make you kind of nervous about God. 
Yeah, I know. In my head, I know it says. It did say in 1 John, we just read it, that God is love. But I also read my Bible in other places, and it says that God brings judgment upon those who sin. It says that he will, he will, those who, those who reject him, those who deny him, those who turn from him, he will cast into eternal, eternal fire and judgment and hell. But yes, I know, Dean. I know it does say God is love. And therefore, because we know these things, sometimes we have a struggle with understanding what exactly that means. And sometimes to hear the phrase, God is love, is just shallow and hollow to us. Because not only that, we even know the pain, the struggle, the turmoil that happens even in our own lives and the people's lives around us. And so there's tension and we want, okay, God is love, yes, but, yet, but. And so as a result, we don't fully understand the love of God. Because when we say that God is love, we are not saying that he never judges or that he won't exact justice or that he would never inflict pain. The reason God brings death and judgment is because he is just. He isn't simply loving. It, loving, loving isn't all he is. Like if that's, he's just loving and he's nothing else. He's, he, he's loving, but he's also, he's also perfectly just. He must do what is right. He will execute judgment because of his justice. This is, this is just and right. It's because if you saw a judge, if there was a judge and he's an evil, an evil man committed an evil crime and took someone's life and he says, you know what? <laughs> um, you, you go free. You go free because I just don't have it in me to, to do harm to you. You go, what? Pardon me? That's unjust. And we see injustice in our world all around us, right? We're like, you, you want to see someone go irate is when you see the, when you see a judge perform an act of injustice. You know that as a judge and someone who must determine between right and wrong and punish the evildoers and reward the righteous, the ultimate judge must do what is right and just. And when he does what is just, we go, yes! Have you ever seen a, a courtroom where a mass murderer gets, gets the death penalty? It erupts in joy. That feels for a moment there's some justice in the world, right? Have you ever seen somebody get off who we know is guilty, if you're around in the 90s with O.J. Simpson, you know what it's like when the glove doesn't fit, and you know it's a scam, and you know injustice is happening. It's infuriating. So we have to understand something. Yes, God is love, but God is the judge of all the earth, and he is perfectly just. And as one who's perfectly just and one who's perfectly loving, you have to realize that these two things coexist together. This, this God is not just a big love goo ball and that's all he is and he wouldn't dare inflict pain. He wouldn't dare judge anyone. He would, oh, I couldn't do that. No, I wouldn't want to hurt them. Ooh. Yeah, that's, that's not what we mean by love. On the other hand, he's perfectly just and he must and he will. And he always will execute justice in the end perfectly. So whatever we understand about love, it can't put God in a place where his actions are unjust. 
Otherwise, the scriptures are a massive contradiction and confusion. God is love in the sense that he does whatever he does for his objects of love for their best. This means that he both endures pain for us and he gives pain to us. And yes, that's love. In love, he endures pain, and in love, he inflicts pain. We might also think that if God is love, he wouldn't allow horrible things to happen to us. Or that he would, lo- if he, he, would lo- he would love to answer every single one of our prayers immediately. Why wouldn't he? God, I know what's best for me. This would be best for me. Why don't you just answer me? Why don't you? I've been pleading for this. I I long for this, but you just, you're silent towards me. Well, let me just say that it's not love to think. If you think that he will give you whatever you want or whatever you ask for, that's not love. That, in fact, could be very unloving if, if, if that thing he gave you would eventually be harmful for you, it would not be the best for you, in the long run it would actually steer you away, then that's unloving. And this is what happens so often in our lives because we're so short-sighted. We're people who are constantly thinking that we know what is best But you need to have a mind that is infinitely wise to know what is ultimately best because there's just too much that happens in life down the road. And every single one of us, if you've lived for a little while, have you got several things that you thought you really wanted, God didn't give you, and then you down the road you have eyes to see, you're like, I'm so glad he didn't answer that prayer. I've got a few. I've got a few, honestly, of prayers I really wanted God to answer begged him for, and he didn't do it. And yet years later, in hindsight, I'm like, thank you, thank you. That would not have been good. It's because I'm finite. My wisdom's finite. I don't understand the end game, and he does. You know, here is the truth. Love, real love, often inflicts pain on the object of love. think, really? Yes. They do it for the person's good, even when it deeply affects them and hurts them badly. In my years, I've seen, I would almost say several, but I know a few for sure. A few situations where I watched parents pin down a child as they were about to do something very painful to the child and the child knew it. A couple occasions, I've seen parents take out very large slivers that they had to cut the skin open to get out. And the kid is writhing in pain as the parents pin the child down and he just will not stand still and they have to pin him down to get to keep the hand still to pull it out. If you watch the scene and you didn't know the context, you'd say, that is cruel and the most barbaric thing I've ever seen. But when you understand what's going on, you realize that these parents in love are doing what's best for the child. It's necessary for that child to be well. 
You know, and, and this can be with broken bones and resetting joints, or there's all kinds of scenarios in life where pain comes and the parents inflict more pain in order to save or deliver or to help or to make sure that the long-range benefit for the child is, is better than if they didn't do it. But you know, here's something else that happens in the midst of that. The parents are dying. They're inside. They're writhing. This is difficult. You watch your child screaming in pain and just freaking out. It's killing you inside. But you're, you're willing to suffer your own inflicted pain for the child's sake. And if you see that picture, you're seeing that this is love. It would be unloving to not inflict the pain so that the child would be better. And see, we get this on a microscopic scale. We get this in certain moments. It makes sense to us. We understand, yes, that's very loving. And you know what's incredibly loving? The greater the degree of the pain that the one doing it is willing to endure for the one being loved, the greater the love. So it's, it can seem awful, it can seem excruciating, it can seem difficult and gnarly on every level. And both people are experiencing two different kinds of pain, severe pain, and it's all love. Pure love. You know, as we, we look at God, and how he deals with us. And if you ever wonder about your pain, if you ever wonder about your struggle, if you ever wonder about, about the, the sorrow and the difficulty that comes, you have to understand two things. One, God loves you deeply, deeply. He knows that there's a thorn so deeply embedded in your soul that it's going to require a tremendous amount of pain to get it out. And two, when you're suffering, he suffers even more. It's difficult for him because of love. It's not like, this will be great. Watch him writhe. Pull this one out. This guy's got to learn a few lessons. He's such a moron. <laughs> Look at him squirm. You know, this is, that, that's not it at all. The Father, if, if you who are evil, as he, as Jesus said, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more your Father who's in heaven? How much more? Jesus, like you don't understand how loving he is. If you who are evil feel grief and sorrow for your children when you inflict pain on them for their gain and benefit, how much more your father who's in heaven? This is why Hebrews 12.5 says this, My son, do not regard lightly. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when he reprove, when, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Listen to what he says here. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. 
Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, he disciplines us for, uh, he disciplines us for our good every time and it's perfect discipline. And he does this that we might share in his holiness. For the moment, listen this, for the moment, all discipline uh, seems painful. It is painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So there you go. If you are a legitimate child of God, you will, you will be disciplined. Sorry. You will. And he's a perfect parent. He doesn't mess up or make guesses like we do as parents. It's perfect. He knows each and every one of us. He knows exactly what we need. He knows, he knows ex- precisely what kinds of inflicted pain will deal with issues deep in our hearts. Have you ever noticed that when the pain comes, what kind of poison comes out? <laughs> you get exposed and you see kinds of, all kinds of things. Crank up the heat and watch what comes out. You want to see what someone's made of? Tick, 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 tick. Turn up the dial. Keep turning up. Tick, tick. I tell you, every single one of us has a snapping point. We will snap at some point. We cannot take it any longer. Done. Just got to keep turning that dial. And But when you see that come out, then you start to see what's inside, truly inside. You will see some ugly stuff in here that you don't like to see. Ooh. That's not very nice. God, could you please turn down the dial because I don't like that stuff coming out. No, that's why he's turning it up. Because he loves you too much to let that poison stay in your heart. That's love. And that we don't think of love like this. We say, God is love. Ooh, this is great. God is love. It's like just love. Like Just pour on the love. I says, okay, I'll pour on the love. When he pours on the love, He pours on the discipline because he loves you way too much for you to stay in your sin, for you to stay in your delusion, for you to think that you're, you're all this and all that in a, in a bag of chips. That's me. And if he leaves me alone, that's, and he starts, if all he did was bless me, I'm like, I start to get a little strut. Check this out. Look what I've done. Look who I am. Have you anybody been noticing? That's what happens to us. That's what we're like. We're proud and we're arrogant and we tend to go in that direction. But God just comes along and he cuts our feet out from underneath of us and we're like eating humble pie. And that's love. He loves you too much. Can you, everybody who's ever been a parent, how do you feel when you see strutting pride in your child? They think they're all this and all that. You're like, ugh. Someone needs to take them down. <laughs> and that, 
that you have to understand the things that we, the righteousness and the goodness and uh, that is really truly good is what God is after because he loves us. So when I say this word, God is love, what do you think? That he just gives you everything you ever want and he's just so kind and gentle and, and meek and mild and oh gee whiz? Or do you see, uh oh, he is love and he loves me way too much to let me get away with the things I like to get away with. So when we understand, we hear this, God is love, we have to realize that because he's love, he's actually willing to inflict a lot of pain for our good. We don't always think of it that way. But I'll tell you what, when he's inflicting the pain, he's experiencing more pain. Because it's, he doesn't like to see us in pain. He doesn't like to see us writhing. He doesn't like to see us like that. But he's willing to endure it. You know, and I say, how could you say that, Dean? How do you know that? Even think of Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, where he says to them, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn and live. Now, let me think of, think of this. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. If he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, he must really have zero pleasure, pain, it must be utter pain when his, his beloved suffers. God's, you know, if we, when we see the wicked perish, we're like, woo! Woo! Because that's, because we do, we hate wickedness and we want to see it gone. We rejoice when the wicked perish and receive their just punishment. That, and we all can feel it inside, but not God. God says, stop that now. Do not rejoice. God just finds no pleasure even in the death of the wicked. I tell you, he finds no pleasure. And in fact, when his own children are suffering in any way, it hurts him. It pains him deeply. So God loves. Why does God love? Because he is love. That's in his very nature. But when we say that word, we have to understand what we mean. He loves deeply. And he is willing to endure whatever for the sake of the beloved. That's his very nature. And when I say God is love, and the scriptures say he is love, this means that God's love isn't conditioned upon loveliness. In 1 John chapter 4, if you look down at verse 9, It says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sin. Now you have to understand what he just said there. Now this is love. Not that we, we didn't love him. There's no loveliness in, a, in him, in us at all. The object of his love doesn't have to be beautiful and lovely and delightful and attractive. Because when God is love, he can love unloveliness. It's because that's who he is. And in fact, you want to see his love. He says he sends his only son into the world. And he, we miss what this means to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is, is, is a wrathful substitute. When some, someone propitiates, they get in the way of the, the judgment and wrath and take it for another. 
So when he says he's the propitiation for our sin, he's the one who took the wrath of God for our sins. That's love. Because don't forget, it's for people who didn't love him, didn't like him, didn't really want him to be around. You know, just look at the world. If you look at the world, they always reject God. They do not thank him as God. They do not glorify him as God. And they would be really happy if they could have all of his gifts and none of him. Yet every single enjoyment they have on this planet is a gift from God who gladly bestows it upon them. And yet what do they do? They take God's precious gifts, devour them, and as the gifts are running down their chins and dripping off, with that same mouth, they would never acknowledge Him. In fact, they deny Him. They could care less about Him. And that's who all of us are. That's us. That's me, apart from the grace of God working in me. And that's, and there's not a single person on this planet, apart from the grace of God, who is righteous in any way, that does not take all of God's gifts, swallow them down, they're running down their chin, they burp, and they say, where's the next one? And yet it's those people that God sent his only begotten son to. I know how, you say, how could he do this? Why would he do this? How does, how does a God so love the world that he gives his only begotten son? How, okay, if you understand the world, you understand what's in the heart of man. It's deceitfully wicked, and he's always seeking his own gain. He's looking, he, he, you won't believe what a man will do in order to get his, to get gain. If there's no fear of God before him, look out. He'll slaughter his own brother slit his throat, just to get his reward. These people, God sent his only son to them to be the propitiation, the one who would take his wrath for them. What? That's called love because one is love. When someone is love, they can love And the object of the love doesn't have to be lovely. But we have a hard time with this one. Because for us, no, I love those who are lovely. Just look at your enemies. Look at those, look at the guy who cut you off this last week. Jammed you the finger as he went by. Were you like, oh Lord, bless him? (laughs) Maybe sarcastically. Oh Lord, bless him. How about our enemies, those who revile us or, or speak falsely against us? What if somebody, what if, what if somebody maligned us in such a way that they ruined us for the rest of our lives? Would there be love towards that person? Would you be willing to give your only child for that person? Are you kidding me? You can't stand that person. You know why that is? Because you are by your nature, you're, you're not the definition, you are not love. And all that stuff is manifest, it brings out in your heart what's really in there. 
And you, you don't know, but by nature, I, you could not say, you know, Dean is love. You're like, oh, that's a joke. You know, the only thing, time I love is when I have known the love of God. It's the love of God in me that comes out of me. If you ever see me love and you see me do a loving action, it's because God first loved me. I'm not by my nature loving. And my enemies? Well, they call them enemies for a reason. Because they're against me and I'm against them. God, by his nature, is love. And so what he does is love. And so we struggle with even God's love because we look at God through the lens of our own love. And our love, and we know it, we know our love is fickle. We know we love that which is lovely. We know when we look at that which is ugly, unlovable, and like despisable, we know we like to like... But look at the thing that's, look at how people treat you. If someone's really loving towards you, you kind of gravitate your love towards them, don't you? You do. And you do because that's, you're not love. You're a sinner. And that's what we do is we almost make God out to be a sinner. We look at him and we think of him and his love, it's like our love. And like, how could God really love me? If he really knew me, Come on, give me a break. He knows you better than you know yourself. And yet he's willing to give his only begotten son for you. How could he do that? Does he not understand me? I can't do that. I could never do that. I would never do that. It's because I'm not love. God is love. Man, I'm telling you, we have to understand this. The fact that God is love allows him to love no matter what, despite the, uh, the, the loveliness of the object. I think when we understand that, we have a lot better understanding of what it means when he says that I'm love. My very nature is love. And this is why God's love frees us to actually love. We are contingent creatures. We are creatures who absolutely are contingent upon being loved before we can love because our nature is not love. Look at the text says in chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So, if, if you've been loved, you ought to love. And, and here's the thing, if, if we are loving, this is what he's saying, if you're loving, if you're a loving person and you love like God, he's saying, okay, it's over. I know for a fact that God abides, we are abiding in God's love. You, because that's the only way that's going to come out of you. Somebody who's loving their enemies and loving the people around them and loving those, those who not, aren't necessarily lovely and love, and love those who sin against them. Okay, slam dunk, bam, I know that person has got the, they know the love of God. The love of God, they've got to know it because it's not natural. It's not natural for you to love your enemies. It's not natural for you to love those who sin against you. Just watch in your own families when somebody sins against you, your spouse or your children or you against them. 
What's the reaction? Is the response love? Well, it'll test you and it'll show you whether or not you're dwelling in the love of God or not. Or you're, perhaps you're walking in your flesh. That's what's so beautiful about a family. The doors are closed, nobody else is looking, and you know each other really, really well. And sin happens. And all it's going to do is manifest what's going on in here. Am I loving? Loving them? And we say, no, no. Man, I need to start loving more. Man, i got to love more. Just not loving like I should. I know I'm not loving like I should. I'm, I would creep sometimes. Just a jerk. And we flog ourselves and, you know, try harder. To, next time I'm going to love harder. All he did is swing harder. He didn't love harder. Why? Because you're not... You've got to know and dwell. Look, this text says to to abide in. This love has got to abide in you. And then when, look what he goes on to say. When God's love abides in you, his love is perfected in you. Because he is love and you're not. You need him and you know to know his love. And so what God's love does, when you know his love, it liberates you. It frees you. It frees you from fear and, and frees you from yourself. It frees you from your own inclinations. It, it, his love overwhelms you, and now you love. In this way, whoever loves knows God and has been born of God, as John says in verse 7. But perhaps more importantly is what I'm telling you practically this does to a person's soul. Listen to how the love of God transforms us in 1 John chapter 4, move down to verse 16. It says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. And then down in verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. Because he does not know the love of God. If he abides in love and knows God's love, you know what will come out of his life? Love. The experiential reality of what is said in this text cannot be overstated. This indeed is the transformative effect of the gospel. When the gospel, the love of God in Christ Jesus, what Jesus does for you, gets you, overwhelms you, and fills you. John is saying, listen, this is one thing that will come out of your life is love. It just will. It's just trans. That's why the gospel is so transformative. This week I listened to a podcast by a, a leading addiction researcher named Dr. Gabor Mate. And I found it just fascinating, especially as he diagnoses the problem of what's going on in so much in the addiction world. He wrote a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction. And 
He said that addiction is any repeated behavior, substance-related or not, in which a person feels compelled to persist, regardless of its negative impact on his life and the lives of others. This is his definition. And Dr. Matei, he, said he has worked with hundreds and hundreds of addicts in, in both dealing with them and trying to help them recover. And he's also deeply studied neurology and psychology in regard to its research and understanding on addiction. In light of all that he has discovered, he says that addiction really has, there's not any scientific evidence whatsoever to show that there's any gene connected to it. And it has, they've now found nothing that has a person's uh, propensity, the person has like just a natural propensity toward it. He says it has everything to do with pain and turmoil within their own being, which the drug of choice numbs, distracts, or takes away. And now it just doesn't, he says, any, no matter what, it just doesn't have to be one particular drug. Some people actually use food and they overeat. Some people go to work. It's like whatever it is, and it, they do it so much, it has negative consequences, both for themselves and the people around them. And so he's, he's saying, well, what is this? Why is this the case? He says, because with a drug of choice, either numbs, distracts, or takes that away. And gives some, at least, some momentary relief. And the reason they keep going back is they really would much rather feel the way they feel when they're getting their relief than not. The moment they take that away, the pain comes back. And then when they, when they do, especially what's really bad is when they do you know, personality-altering kind of drugs, and they do all kinds of nasty things. Now when they're uh, off their high, now they have an added pain, an added guilt, added shame, and now it's twice as bad. And now the drug seems twice as good. And now they're on the drug, and they do more things that they're guilty and shameful about. So now when they come down, now it's quadruple. It just goes, it has this multiplying effect. So they just start running harder and faster towards it. Paradise, if you were to describe paradise to an addict, for them, it would be to find something that brought the relief and gave them the high that their drug does, drug of choice, without the negative consequences. If they could somehow have that without the negative consequences, you've just found paradise. Because it always feels better when they're taking their drug of choice than when they're not. When it, can't, you know, it comes to all of Dr. Matei's work, it's clear that he understands, he really does understand, actually, the human condition. I felt like he diagnosed it so well. But it was also clear that he really doesn't have an answer. And he made that very clear, that there's things you can do to help. But he knows the answer is deep. And what they need is, is a, it's an issue in a matter of the soul. And as I was listening to it, my heart was breaking on the one hand and rejoicing on the other. Breaking for all those who are addicted and rejoicing that Jesus set me free. <laughs> and, 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 and be able to realize that, yeah, there's soul pain. And the only thing that fixes this is the love of God in Jesus. Love of God. You know, 
The Bible has been talking about this problem for thousands of years, but no one likes to listen because they don't even understand what the words mean. The Bible says that, Adam, in the moment you eat of this, you will surely die. The Bible talks about this death. Adam didn't die physically, and I've talked about this before, but he died spiritually. He was separated from God. Do you understand? So God is love. He is love. God is, and we're looking at this, he's supremely, infinitely loving and wise and powerful, and we were in union and communion with him. We were designed to be this way. Adam died separated from the God who gave him all his meaning and purpose and love and filled him. And now he's like groping around in life and there's this problem inside of every single human being. There's this unrest. There's insecurity. There's fear. Right away, Adam's fearful. He jumps behind the bush. I knew you were around here and I was freaked out. And so we're afraid of everything. Fear, fear, fear. We're insecure. We're worried. We're stressed. We have anxiety. Oh, no. This is what we're like. And what does John say? Perfect love casts out all fear. You abide in love, and what will come out of your life is love. Because you know what happened? We were reconciled in Christ Jesus. We were reconciled to the God who created us, and we are made to be in union and communion with Him. And when we're there, and that the God of love fills us with His love, love comes out, we become alive, we have purpose, we have meaning, we have fulfillment, we have joy, we have peace. The past is understanding, and you can't know it until you live it and experience it. And once you do, you see, this is life, and this is life everlasting. And why would I need a drug? Why would I need anything? Oh, I need it if there's a problem. When there's a problem... When my soul is empty and fear starts getting jacked up, worry and anxiety and trouble and all these things, I'm not abiding in love, the God of love. And right there, I'm, I'm a perfect candidate for some kind of an addiction. Some kind. You know, this life This life brings enough from the outside. We have interior issues. The soul needs to be reconciled with God, needs to abide, abide in God's love. And then if it's not there, that's one thing. Now from the outside, we're living this broken world where what comes to me is pain, suffering, turmoil, rejection, accusations. People malign me. People accuse me. They say false things against me. So you add that to that, and you got, you got a nasty recipe. We understand the human condition. We should understand addiction completely. I get it. I understand it. I know why someone would do it. It makes all the sense in the world trying to run and escape from that, but it makes no sense once you know the love of God in Christ Jesus. The only remedy for all humanity is the love of God in Christ Jesus. The gospel will save people from fear will save people from death and, and, and make them come alive. Do you realize that Jesus came to set the captives free? He came, set at liberty those who lie in darkness. He came to give sight to the blind and give life to dead men. 
Jesus came to deal with the death in our souls. But here's something that concerns me deeply. Even within the church, all these people who know and have heard the gospel don't know the gospel. Don't know the love of God in their souls. You're like, yeah, yeah, I've heard about Jesus all my life. The gospel. The good news of God. Sending his son into the world. Died for our sins. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you don't, we don't understand. What Jesus came to do was to heal you. To restore life to you. To, to give you life and life everlasting, life overflowing, so that you would know love. You'd be reconciled to the God who is love. And that you all fear would be cast out and you would be made new and you would know and live in the love of God. It's to be an experiential thing. It's not a head thing. You can know all you, all you want about the gospel. I'll give you an exam in this room and I guarantee you most people would pass the test. But let me ask you, where's your soul? Do you know the gospel? And when I say that, let me put it a different way. Do you know the love of God in Christ Jesus in your soul? Are you, in your, are you overflowing with love, joy, and peace? Or are you overflowing with fear, anxiety, worry, and stress? Perfect love does what? It casts out fear. You know, we, it's not about knowing it. It's about knowing it. It's experiential knowledge is what he's talking about. I think one of the things that I, we have to understand, even as the text tells us in 1 John, that we need to abide in love. As we abide in love, this fear goes away. Now let me help you with something. This is as I end this here. I think one of the things that we fail to do as Christians is use our imaginations and visualization in a way that's very helpful. A.W. Tozer called this the sanctified imagination. And this is why so many Christians, they might have experienced or known the love of God and they drift away, is because they don't dwell in and abide in the love of God. And here's the thing. If we're, if we're logical people and always thinking and thinking, I think that if you think enough about the gospel and analyze enough the cross and analyze the atonement and analyze this text of scripture and analyze this, that somehow by knowing in our heads and figuring it all out, we will experience it. Analytical creatures, logical creatures who are trying to figure out the gospel and figure out atonement instead of experientially realizing it and abiding in it. Here's something I've come to realize. And I know this because I'm guilty of this. I'm, I like to logically figure things out. I think if I read another book on the atonement and analyze it from another angle, it'll give me a little bit of a high and I, and, and I get some like a sense of, yeah, the gospel really is good until tomorrow. But I either got to read another book or be reminded or something. 
But one thing that I have failed to do, and I think we often fail to do, is even knowing what it means to use our imaginations and, our, and, and visualization in what is true. Now, let me give you an example of this right now. You know in your heads right now, theologically, that God is present, right? Right now, God is everywhere present. And if you're a Christian who is in Jesus, Jesus dwells in you by the Spirit. God's present by the Spirit right now in this room, everywhere. And he's dwelling in you right now. But you know what? The God, this God of love is dwelling in you. But how, how often do we experientially realize this? Not often because it's hard to, it's, that's a hard concept for the brain to calculate and figure out. But you know what? It's not difficult. It's for your imagination and for you to visualize this reality. The thing about imagination and visualization is it brings you, it's very experiential. The moment you imagine it, you experience it. That's why God designed it. Have you ever read a story and you begin to visualize a story? Someone's reading and you're, you're walking down the path. You see the trees. You see the monsters and the people and everything else. And you can get into it. Next thing you know, you're experiencing it as if you're there. That's what your, that's how your imagination works. And it's, Here's the thing about what's very difficult about the love of God and abiding in it is often not even knowing how to use that part of our brains that God gave us in terms of meditating, in terms of dwelling, in terms of contemplating as the scriptures talk about. Is that if you, you know what you can do right now is you can imagine the, the presence of the love and joy and peace of God in this room. And when you imagine it, and you visualize, what would that be like? Just imagine it. You, you then begin to experience it. Because that's the part, that's the, what happens when we imagine things. The imagination is very connected to us emotionally. The logical part of our brain is not so connected to us emotionally. The more logical we get, the less emo- emotional we are. And so even experiencing or knowing or realizing that God dwells in you, the God of love dwells in you, the God of love dwells around you, God is everywhere present. That's a hard concept logically, but it's one thing that we can do is understand this visually in a sense of your imagination. When you imagine it, imagine this room right now, the love of God. Imagine this love of God we talked about, this love, the love that's infinite, supreme love dwells in you right now. This God has loved me. And, and so imagining Him, imagining the Spirit, imagining th- this reality, this truth, affects you experientially. And I think it's one of the, one of the things we don't do nearly often enough is engage our imaginations. And the reason why it's so helpful is because what I'm talking about is invisible. You can't see it with your physical eyes. And you can rationally think it, but it doesn't affect you. But if you visualize the reality, visualize the truth, imagine what is true, and you dwell there, it begins to affect you. And I guarantee you, if you do this and if you practice this often enough and continual enough, you can, it, it really begins to affect you. You can dwell in, you can abide in, you can rest in the love of God, knowing that His love, this God of love is with you and dwells in you. And I'm reconciled to him. I think that so many of us don't experience this because our, we don't dwell on this in the right parts of our brains even. We think about renewing our minds or meditating or dwelling on and we think it's a logical thing. 
But take what is true. You know what is true. And the sanctified imagination and, and visualize it and imagine it. And as you do, it affects you emotionally. And I think that awakens our hearts to the love of God. And I say this because I think this is an area that, especially as reform types, we're like, huh? What are you talking about? It's like, isn't there another book I could read? Analytical, logical part of your brain is not connected to your emotional part. You want, I've read books about this. You want to get somebody out of the emotional part of their brain? Make them or get them to think logically. And you can almost, you can snap them out of it instantly. And, and people will do this. So they'll go into intense situations, the ones who are really skilled at this, and they get somebody thinking logically. And it snaps them out of the emotional center of the brain. And so that we, that's where we love to live and dwell often and figure out. So if I'm going to really get to know the love of God in Christ Jesus, I've got to figure it all out. Instead of resting in it, abiding in it, visualizing it, imagining in it, and realizing and living in what is actually true. I want us to leave here this morning not just knowing or hearing, but experiencing. Leave here realizing here's something that is absolutely true. God is love. And hopefully we know what that means. He's love. And this God has loved you by sending his only begotten son for you, to die for you, to be the propitiation for your sins. And he, and he dwells in you by the Spirit. The God of love dwells in you. Now you've got to abide in this. Rest in this. Remain in this. And this is really, I, I want to encourage you, use your imagination. Visualize what this really means. And so that it affects you experientially. So you believe it, you know it, you live in it, and you abide in it. So the more, the day to day, really what we have to do is walk through life, begin to walk through life visualizing and imagining and seeing with, with our, our mind's eye the love of God that we dwell in, that fills us, that we're, that we are united to in Christ. Because if we don't have a way of actively living this out and living with, imagining this, thinking about this, it often disappears from us. And we go about our days until our devotion times next tomorrow. Have a hard time knowing it's like to dwell in and live in the love of God. May God have mercy on us.